sing that song, I hope we're reminded the simple truth of the story of Christmas makes Jesus worthy. And it's not just him coming, though, during Christmas. We know that his name is worthy because of what he did on this earth. And we're going to be looking at that together. Before we do that, would you please pray with me? Father, we are here again as your people. We're delighted to know you, delighted to be able to hear from you again. I pray that your spirit would guide our hearts to rejoice in what we learn about you. I pray that this Christmas would be a time when we are given to reflecting on the truths that we know. Lord, I pray that we would have more wonder this Christmas at what you've done for us. And I pray that as we read your word, that we would be filled with awe, filled with praise, filled with hope and peace, knowing that you have done for us great things. Lord, show us them today, we pray. For your glory alone, do this. may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Last week, we looked at a passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This week, we're going to be looking at 10 through 18. 10 through 18. So I invite you to turn there with me. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. And we're going to answer the question of how does Christmas help us every single day? And we're going to do that by seeing why it was necessary for Jesus to come as a human in the first place. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 9 and we saw that the promise of gaining the world to come could not be fulfilled by us fallen humanity. That there were promises that God made of a world to come after the first creation fell into sin, all of it under the curse. And God said through prophets, through the rest of the Bible, that there would be one who would come who would restore it. But we noted that it was a human, and we see that the promise is still true because of Jesus. And that's what gives us hope. And so we looked at our hope comes through Christ's humility. Because it came first through the humility of Jesus Christ, and he had to suffer in his humility as a human. This week, we're going to answer again the question of why was it necessary for Christ to come as a human? And we're going to see that Jesus living as a human made him our perfect savior for every single day of our life. And that's what gives us peace. Again, hope and peace are two things that we long for. But we're going to see that our peace comes because Christ was a human and that's what we're going to see. He's going to answer, how, how do we get peace through Christ being a human? How is he able to offer peace to us? And so we're going to look today at Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. Let me read them with you. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Church, this is a rich passage. And I look forward to speaking it and giving some clarity. But there are things in here that we cannot mind today. But there are things that I want us to see. First of all, I want to give a little bit of an introduction. Because what he says in verse 10 is very important for us to understand as he moves down in the rest of the passage. Notice he says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word, it is fitting, means it was appropriate to the need. It was proper. All of us agree that it is good. That's what the author is saying. If you don't believe it's good, you're not seeing it correctly. It was fitting to the needs that God was trying to meet. And so it actually is fitting because it also reveals best the nature of God. Hebrews 1 reminds us that God revealed himself in many ways in the past, but now he's revealed us to or revealed himself to us through his son. And so the son is the best representation of God. And so it was fitting for him to do something to Jesus. If you read it, it actually would just simply say, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's, that's the sentence. But then he adds two little phrases. Notice he says, for whom and by whom all things exist. And what he's getting back again is that original creation. It's God's because he made it and it existed to glorify him. But it's not doing that in the fullness that it's supposed to be. So it's fitting that since everything was for him, his glory, and by him it exists, it is fitting for him to seek to restore creation to himself. That's fitting. But it's not just creation. Notice he says in bringing many sons to glory. There's also humanity. Remember last week we looked at God made man a little lower than the angels, yet crowned him with glory and honor. Made in the image of God. And it's fitting for him because it's for him and it was by him and also because he wants sons to come to glory. So that's talking about all of it is seeking to be restored to God. And so he cannot have his purposes changed. It will be as he designed and determined from the beginning. And so it's fitting for God to pursue the restoration of creation to his glorious purpose. And that's what it means to be restored. That's what he's getting at. He's talked about the world to come. And he says the restoration is you bringing, being brought back into a right relationship with him and granting it rest. That original Sabbath rest means it's giving you peace. That's the expectation when he talks about the restoration, is that it's moving back to peace with God. But the question is, what is the fitting way that he restores creation? And he says, he says it was fitting that he would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now the founder here is actually the word the pioneer. This is the idea of the one who goes before you. I thought of Ray Kroc in the movie The Founder. That's not what it is. That's McDonald's franchise. 
That's totally different. This is the one who goes before you. This is the one who's in a sense leading the excavation. He's showing you the way in which salvation comes. The question is, who's, who's going to go first? If you ever have something where perhaps it's questionable whether or not you should do it, the question is always, so who's going to try it? Who's going to go first? And that might be really stupid, the first person who does it, but you see the potential danger through that person and you can correct things differently for the second person. Well, Jesus says, I'm going first. And he actually says, I've gone first. And we see that him going first, he's on the other side now as the friend saying, Come on, come on. And you and I are over here going, should we go? Should, should we go? And he says, yes, come, follow me. This is where he leads us because he's, he's now crowned with glory and honor as we looked at last week. And so he's saying, come, this is the way. This is the way we have to go. And it's exciting. But notice, it came through suffering. He didn't just become perfect He was made perfect through suffering. Now some of you might ask, wait a minute, Jesus is not perfect? Isn't that heresy? He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So how is Jesus less perfect? The author is saying here, Jesus is unable to help us perfectly, completely, unless he is a human unable to fully benefit. He's not adding to his own perfections. His perfections are perfect. He's simply adding greater benefits in helping us. That's amazing. And it comes through suffering. And he can't suffer unless he's a human. Hence the need for Christmas. And so the author introduces right there that Jesus had to be a human in order to suffer. But now he sees that here are the benefits that we gain because Jesus is a human and because he was made perfect through suffering. And in seeing these, the goal is that you and I would trust him more and therefore in trusting him we would have peace in our hearts knowing that this is the Jesus who we love and serve. And so the first thing we see is that his humanity gives us peace when we're rejected. I don't know how you guys approach people for the first time, but perhaps you're thinking things like, I wonder what they'll think of me. I wonder if they'll think I'm funny. I wonder if they will even like me, if they actually get to know me. Do I have to put on my my good self or my real self? Which one am I going for with this group of people? And there's always a fear that these people knowing you will somehow reject you. And I think... How often we assume that God is the same way as humans. If he knows us, he will reject us. Well, can we just be honest? God knows us perfectly. So there's nothing we are hiding from God in getting to know us. He already knows us. And so there's natural uncertainty that we have is, does God still like us? Is he going to reject us? Because when others get to know us, Really, truly, there are things that they won't like about us and they'll reject us because of these things. But to those who trust in Jesus, this passage first is showing us that he will always stand with us. Let me show you that. In verse 11 it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I don't know what translation you're using, but that word source is variously translated. It actually simply says they are all of one. That's what it says. They're all one. What is he talking about? They're all of one source or one origin. 
It's not God because angels come from God. Even animals come from God. And his argument here is that we are different from these things. And so what he's actually saying is we're all of one humanity. It could be talking about the fact that all of us are from Adam, the first human, or in particular, they're all from Abraham. Jesus is from the line and lineage of Abraham. Either way, what he's saying here is that he is truly a human. We have the same oneness as him. He became like us. He's not lofty and aloof in heaven saying, I hope it goes good down there. He actually became a human and walked with us. We could have gone and seen him. That's amazing. This is what it says. Since we have one source, it says that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Again, this is this idea of bringing sons to glory, those who are sanctified. He calls us his family, his family. And I have to say, I've said it before, but the reason why he uses the term sons to glory and brothers is because boys were the ones who inherited. They're the ones who inherited. Now, I know some of you ladies probably are like, I don't want to be a son. That's okay. I've said this before. I don't like to be called a bride, but that's what I am too. You're a son, I'm a bride, we'll get over it. That's just how the Bible claims it. So the fact is, when he says he's not ashamed to call them brothers, he's not ashamed to call them family, part of his family. This idea of not ashamed is beautiful. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. Jesus is not humiliated by you. Whether your actions, whether your characteristics, or even your associations... It says he is not ashamed to call us his family. How many of us have been embarrassed by our own family? How many of us embarrass our family? I think of an older brother who's embarrassed by their little brother. Says things, you're embarrassing me. Leave me alone. That's not our older brother. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Do you think of Jesus as your older brother? I, I, I didn't. I don't really think of that. It actually says he's not ashamed to call us brothers, family, siblings. Him, the true sibling, us adopted siblings. But you would think of that the true born has more rights than the adopted one. And yet he says, but he treats you as if a natural born son gives all the benefits of sonship to you. And he proves this by quoting three Old Testament passages. Look at the first one. He says he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Some of us might know the Psalm 22. It starts off with a very familiar phrase at the beginning where Christ is crucified and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. But probably few of us know the rest of the psalm But he's crying out in the first half of the psalm, God, you've forsaken me. He says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. They yell at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It says, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's all the crucifixion. 
He cries out, the psalmist cries out, do not be far from me, come quickly to help me, rescue me, save me. The next verse is, verse 22, I will declare your name to my people and in the assembly I will praise you. Why the change? Why in verse 22? Because then the psalmist looks and says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry for help. And what he's saying here, the author of Hebrews knew this when he quoted the second half of Psalm 22 and he said, listen to me. He says, Jesus faced rejection from God so you and I never will. Jesus faced it. You and I will never face rejection from God. So we can have peace when we're rejected by people because we know that God himself will never reject his children. But the next two quotes remind us we will be rejected by people. Isaiah 8 is the context of the next two quotes. And he says, again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let me quickly walk through these. If you know Isaiah 7 and 9, you have rich Christmas truths there. Isaiah 7 says, behold, a virgin will be with child and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 9 says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To the end of his kingdom, there will be no end. In the middle is Isaiah 8, which he quotes from. In Isaiah 8, Isaiah has a conversation with the king and basically is telling him that there's going to be a rejection of the word that I speak to you. And Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him because I have to trust that even though right now people are rejecting your word, Lord, there will come a time when your word will be fulfilled And so Isaiah himself, facing rejection, says, I will put my trust in him. He lived in total dependence on God, even when he couldn't see things going the way that God should have brought it about. And even Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying, had to learn to trust God when he couldn't see what God was necessarily doing. He knew the end. He even knew the way in which it was going. But you and I looking at it, it says, I will put my trust in him. God trusted, Jesus trusted in God himself when he was rejected. And the call to us is live that same way. When he says, behold, I and the children God has given me, there are three kids stated in this passage in Isaiah 7 and 9. The first one is Emmanuel. They will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's an actual child that was born in that time. His name is Emmanuel. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. But Emmanuel, that's one child. A second child who is Isaiah's, his name is She'er Jashub, which means a remnant will return. People will be saved. Even though these people here are not receiving it, a remnant will return. There will be people. And the final son, who's one of my favorite, is Mahershalal Hashbaz. Awesome. I noticed no one named their kids that this year. That was very disappointing. But it means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. In other words, God gave a judgment to the people. If you reject my words, you will be destroyed by the Assyrians. So you've got God is with us. There are people who will listen. If you do not listen, though, you will be destroyed. 
And he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. In other words, they're testifying to what God will do and what God has done. And can I say that he's using this passage to say that Jesus put his trust in him? People rejected him, yet God brought about exactly a remnant of people. And those who neglect him, as he says in the opening verses of chapter 2, he says, they're going to face destruction themselves. And the question throughout Hebrews is, are you going to reject Jesus? Are you going to reject him? Are you going to turn away from him and go back to the things that give you comfort? Because God is with us and he's shown that in Jesus Christ. And there's a remnant of people. There are people who are sons of glory that are going to glory. What about you? Are you going to reject him? And Jesus talks about this. In fact, when he came in Luke 9... He says to us, look on the screen, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So there is a fear of him being ashamed of you if you are not his family. And the evidence of that is that you and I are ashamed of him. I, I, yeah, I know, I know. You reject him, there's a rejection of you. You come to him, he will never reject you. You have confidence in him. That's why Luke 6 says this, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, they reject you, they revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He says, rejoice. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Amen. Leap for joy. For behold, he says, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. Again, Think of Isaiah as one of the many examples of the prophets who were rejected. And history is filled, filled with believers being ignored, rejected by the world. But strength comes to us and peace comes to us when we're rejected because we know that Jesus is with us. Look at this passage in 2 Timothy. Paul, one of the last letters he writes, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, all deserted me. He says, may it not be charged to them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He says, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He will never reject me even though everybody else did. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, I have to say that probably Christmas and holidays might make you face family members that you have not gotten along with very well. Maybe you butt heads over every single word that you guys speak. Can I challenge you? Can I challenge you to with gentleness speak the truth to them? That you would have a boldness in speaking the truth of the gospel to them and if they reject you for that, Let it be so. But some of us have more pride in our stance on the pandemic and on political opinions than we do the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not good. May you be rejected for the gospel of Jesus Christ first. Let them know that first. Let them know that with gentleness, with patience, with love, because you want them to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And those who are faithful and rejected, Jesus stands with you. He's not ashamed of you. And you can have peace when that happens because he is yours. The next thing we see is that he gives us peace when we are afraid. When we are afraid. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, the second reason that we see us having peace is because of his humanity helps us when we're afraid. Notice, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So since the children share, he took also of the same things. It's a simple way of saying he took on flesh and blood. The children comes from the verse we just read. So we're not only sons and daughters, we're also his children. I don't know how that works, but it does. He himself likewise partook of the same things. The children sharing is the thing that you and I have fellowship in our humanity. Jesus did not have that fellowship with us. He didn't. The word is koinonia, fellowship, that you and I have now because of Christ. And then it says that Jesus partook of it. He took it on himself so that he could fellowship with us in the same manner that we naturally fellowship with one another. So now that Jesus is a human, he can fellowship with us in the same manner that we fellowship with one another. And it's beautiful. And so he goes constantly back to the wonder of him becoming a human. Again, he's saying, look at how amazing Christmas is. Now what benefit do we see here about Christmas? And he says this simply, Jesus defeated our enemies. He became human so that he might destroy and deliver. He destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil, and delivers the fear of death from people because we were lifelong slaves to the fear of death. Now the question we have to ask is what power did the devil have? It says he has the power of death. And we know the Bible says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so many of us assume if we see that happening, that is 100% the devil. 100% the devil. Can I just tell you the devil does not go around and just touching people and they die. He doesn't just walk around and walk up to someone and go, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah, that felt good. You're dead. He has, let me, let me say this very carefully. He has no ability to kill anybody. No ability to kill anybody unless it is first given permission for him to do so. He has zero percent chance of doing anything on his own. Zero percent chance of doing anything of his own initiative. Let me show you some passages of scripture. Look at Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. It says, see now, this is God talking. I myself am he, there is no God besides me. I put to death. I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I don't know how that makes you feel, but God is the one who is sovereign over life and death. He is absolutely 100% the one who grants life and takes it away. He might use other people to do it. 
He might raise up an evil nation and allow them to do this. He might use the devil like he did in Job to do the very things, but they have no ability on their own to do it by themselves. Lamentations 3 says this, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Answer, zero people, no one, nothing. Is it not from the mouth, God's the one who speaks this, of the most high that both calamities and good things come? So again, as we're looking at this, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. What is he talking about? What does it mean that he has destroyed the power of the devil who has the power of death? Well, let's just say that death is the only fitting outcome to sin. The Bible says very clearly the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing that sinners deserve is death. God is the judge of the world. And he's the only one who brings that punishment. That's why in Matthew he says to the people, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, you might die. But then there's a judgment That's very important to care about that judgment, not necessarily the death. Care about the judgment is what he's saying. That's why you and I fear death. We fear facing judgment. That's the result of sin. We are separated from God and every human being knows this by nature. We all know this. And so when he says he's destroying the power of death, it's the same idea as him delivering from the fear of death. So the question would be, how did the devil make us fear death? And here's how he does it. You and I are enslaved by his accusations. He accuses us. That's what the word Satan means, is the accuser, the one who attacks and accuses us. So in other words, Satan is, or was rather, saying, they can't be with you because they're sinful. All they deserve is death and separation from you. And that is correct. That's true. He's right. He's 100% right. That is why also the expectation from of old is that this one would come and make us right with God. And even our Christmas carols sing this. It says this. Look at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It says, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And I would change that to say Emmanuel has come, has come to thee, O Israel. But we need that to happen in order for us to have peace with God. So how did he destroy the devil? How does he deliver us from the fear of death? And that's why he says in verse 14, he partook of the same things that through death he might destroy death and deliver us from the fear of death. Again, the argument of this passage is that it is fitting that Jesus be made perfect through suffering. He was the perfect conqueror. How did he conquer? He conquered through dying. Humble dependence on God and humility to the point of death. Look at Colossians chapter 2. This is what he accomplished in that death. 
It says about you and I, we were dead, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. God made us alive together in or with him. Notice, how did he do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the record of debt that we had, all of our sins. God's law is there to show us how sinful we are and how undeserving we are of God's presence. And setting up the sacrifice and the temple and the curtain, everything is saying you can't come anywhere near him at all. Good luck. But God provided provision, temporary provisions. But Hebrews goes on and says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sins. And so even as the sins were passed over, it says, the time was waiting where God would be just in punishing sins and the one who could justify us through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul writes here and says, that's what stood against us. That's what gave us right judgment before God is that God was awaiting the time when he would actually put forth his son as the payment for our sins. And so in Jesus Christ, now you and I have no fear of death at all. Because when we die, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are immediately in his presence, church. That's awesome. Some of you have lost loved ones who knew the Lord Jesus. Praise the Lord, they are with him. And we have full hope that that is true. I speak regularly to my kids about the reality of death. I say, Charles, you're gonna mess them up. I say, well, or I'm just preparing them for reality. That they're gonna be persecuted, that they're gonna be rejected, that people are not gonna like them, they're gonna be weird. But the worst that man can do to us is bring us to the presence of God. That's the worst thing. That is literally the worst thing that could happen to us is that they kill us and we go to heaven. So that's, hmm. Maybe we should think about that reality more. But what he's saying is, listen, that record of debt that stood against us, the very thing that you and I would fear, is God going to receive me? He says, Yes, the cross finished that question forever. And the resurrection and his unity before God is the very reason that you and I have hope and peace. And so Satan now, if he were to come to Jesus and say, hey, you see what Charles is doing? Look at this guy down there. Look at how evil he is. God looks at him and goes, uh, 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 uh. Do you see him? He's the one who paid for him. You have nothing to slander my son with anymore. His record is gone. The righteousness of my son is his because he trusts in me. And Satan hates it, but it's gone. He is destroyed with that ability to do that ever again. Church, that's amazing. And because of that, we were held in lifelong slavery to fear of death. This is why we needed Christmas. We need to be reminded that nothing can separate us from God's love now. There's nothing. That's what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says to us, look at this. Many of us might know this passage, but encourage your hearts again. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Great question, no one. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, no one. Who is going to condemn this person? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. And he's at the right hand of God who's praying for you and I. He's interceding on our behalf. In other words, nobody can condemn you. No one can bring a charge against you because God is for us. So who's going to separate us from the love of God? And then he goes on and writes and says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or anything in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, has the power to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The more we understand this love, the more we understand confident peace and lose fear. Look at what it says in 1 John 4. He says, so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So notice this, that you and I have to abide in God's love. And as that love is understood, it is perfected in us so that you and I understand that there's a day of judgment that's coming that we will be perfectly fine. Because as he is now in heaven, so are we. He's a child exalted to the hand of God. We are children now waiting that same reality. And then he says this, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But church, that's the temptation, is that we fear that God will somehow reject us because of our sins. And it makes us afraid to stand to God and to go to him and to talk to him. And that's exactly the next thing that he addresses in this passage. So the final thing we see is that God gives us peace when we're tempted Notice it says in verse 16, he says, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So the final thing we see is why Christmas was necessary is because God is the one who helps us when we're tempted. He gives us peace in the midst of temptation. Notice it says, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest and so he's able to help those who are being tempted. But he starts and says, it's not angels that he helps. In other words, the the word there is actually he doesn't receive angels to himself. Again, it's bringing many sons to glory. That's not angels. He subjected the world to come to humans. And so he's helping the offspring of Abraham. Again, those of faith. Those who know him. And that's why he was made like his brothers in every respect. He's getting more and more personal as we move on. It's not just that he became human. He shared in flesh and blood. An actual born human is what he's saying. And then he says, and in every respect. That word there is talking about he had every feeling, emotion, and experience of humanity. Every feeling, 
emotion and experience of humanity. So he had joy and sorrow. He had gain and loss. He had friendship and betrayal, satisfaction and hunger, companionship and loneliness. He knew what it was like to submit to people he was better than and disagreed with. I love that. This is God-man, and he has parents who he knows better than, and he still submitted to his parents. Kids, let that be a good help to you. He knew also what it was like to see family and friends die. He knew what it meant to be obscure and waiting. He grew up in Nazareth. No one even knew where Nazareth was. And he lived there for over 30 years. Nobody knew he was there. So if you feel like your job is worthless... He lived a job where no one knew him. And this is the son of God. And he did the same thing day in and day out until the start of his ministry, which was about three years. He lived in obscurity. He knows exactly what that feels like. He knew what it was to be under an oppressive, scheming, manipulative, unjust ruling system that took advantage of the weak and profited off their demise. Does that sound anything? He knows what that's like. And he lived all of this perfectly sinless. That's why it says, therefore, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful means he's always sympathetic and compassionate. He knows your weaknesses and your full dependence on him. He's not surprised or astonished that you fail. He's always moved with loving kindness and compassion towards you as a sinner because that's the way you were when he died for you. The fact that he's faithful means he always continues to be the same way towards you. So when you see him as merciful one day, the next day when you don't think he's merciful, he hasn't changed, he's still faithful. He's that same person. He's never changed. You are at times as wild as the waves of the sea. He's not Yep, there they go again. They'll be down. Yep, there they are again. Hello, I'm still here. Still merciful and faithful. Always standing ready to help you. Because it says that he was the propitiation for your sins. He's removed everything that would stand against you and coming to him. And so this is why he says he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me ask this. How often have you gone to Jesus this year? How often have you spoken to him of your fears and the things that you are facing and the things that you're dealing with and perhaps your anxieties and the things that are driving you nuts? Do you go to Jesus on a regular basis? And this is where a life that is humble and dependent on God is actually rewarded because the more you come to Jesus, the more you understand his mercy, his love, his patience, his kindness, His faithfulness more than anyone else. You would know it more because you would see it more. And the more we know of him, the more confidence we have. And here's what's ironic about us with our temptations. I think of how often I am trying to frantically order things now so that I can gain peace in the future. That's my order. I go, oh man, okay, I got to get things in order now because I'm uncertain about the future. So I order it now in order to this then leads to this. It's amazing. Do you realize that God has ordered our future and working its way back, that gives us peace now. We're so worried about the future. He's ordered our future. He has everything in control right here. And he goes, why don't you have peace? We're trying to get peace now and work our way to the future. 
He goes, do it backwards. I've already done it for you. It's confident. Stop doing that. Just trust me. I have your future taken care of. And this is why the great promise of Hebrews 4 is so amazing. When we look at this, we would do exactly what it says. Look at this text. It says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess Because as we keep looking to the future, we see that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you and I are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, boldness, courage, expectation, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can we admit our time of need is every moment? We're always able to go to God. Our problem is is that we don't think we need him until things are out of control. We need him every single moment. And this is why Christmas matters every day. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at all the wonderful things he has done. He's been rejected for us so we will not be rejected. He defeated death and everything that stood opposed to us that would ever separate us from God and he's brought us fully into the loving acceptance of God. And now, as you and I live from here until eternity, he is standing constantly ready to care for you, to pray for you every day. Even when you don't pray to him, he's praying for you and he's always ready to have you come to him and he's there sympathetically, faithfully, mercifully patient and loving towards you every moment of every single day. Church, wow, that is good. That's why Christmas is so good, because he would have none of that. He would not be perfect that way unless he first came as a human. We have none of these benefits unless he came for Christmas. So as you look and you see nativity scenes and you see this little baby, you know that's the start of the realities that you and I have gained now. And 2,000 years later, that story is still richly beautiful, and it is the very thing that you and I have hope in. In The humility and humanity of Jesus gives us hope and peace. And that is why the hymn, Christmas hymn says, Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Lord Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for doing this for us. It is stuff that we are simply many times ignorant of. Lord, we forget them so quickly, these wonders that you have accomplished for us on our behalf, that you were made perfect through suffering. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that we would understand your love in ways that we cannot even truly appreciate. But Lord, press them into us. Press them into our hearts by your Spirit. You've poured your spirit into us as also an expression of this. So Lord, guide us to Jesus. Let us know that your throne of grace stands always ready and open, that you are a good high priest, a sufficient mediator. You're the one who has removed everything that would stand opposed to us from you. Lord, there are people here perhaps in hearing that do not know this truth. Lord, I pray that their eyes would be open to see it and to wonder at you. They would be amazed 
that you are the one who's done this for us. Lord, we did nothing to do this. This is of grace. Lord, grant us the faith to see it. Grant us the humility to receive it. Lord, for your glory, for your glory, do these things, Lord. We want to see you. So, Lord, we also pray that you would come back. Lord, we want to be with you. stand together. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who gives us peace, the one who calms the storm, the one who never rejects us, who delivers us from fear. Let's sing with Leanne.
calms every fear. Christmas, and I wonder, I wonder if those words that you have just proclaimed, if you actually mean it, is it really well with your soul? Maybe you're someone that that spends a lot of time looking into the past and you see a day or a weekend or a month or a season of life and you're letting that determine whether or not it is well with your soul you let that be your truth, determining that this is the way life is going to be, well, it's not going to be well with your soul if that's where you stay. So I love it. Turning and facing the throne of grace and approaching it with confidence because that is where you find hope and peace. It will not be with your, well with your soul if you don't go there. If you have yet to go there, I encourage you, come on down. I stand here. There will be others ready to pray with you and talk that through with you. So come on down. Hey, brother, sister in Christ, if it's not well with your soul, come on down. We would love to talk with you as well about how that can be changed. Know this, church. You are loved. I say Merry Christmas today and hope to see you Christmas Eve. Have a great week.